So if you would open your Bibles to Romans 5, while you're doing that, uh, let me remind you, next week is Thanksgiving. And so normally at our church, if we were having in-person midweek services, we usually move Wednesday and slide it over to Tuesday. Uh, And so we're going to do the same thing here next week. So next week, uh, our Wednesday night Bible study will be held Tuesday night. Uh, And we'll be live streaming same time, 7 o'clock. Don will probably send a reminder out next week to let you know. uh, But just kind of letting you know now as you make plans. Uh, And hopefully you'll be able to spend some time with family, regardless of what uh, the restrictions are. Uh, Hopefully the restrictions won't be increased or tightened uh, in our area. And maybe they'll even be loosened in other areas. It's just uh, more than an imposition. And we won't get into all that, but uh, it's a problem. And I think that uh, our our humanity uh, is being put at risk and is being damaged. And so, I, I, you know, family is important. The relationships we have with people is important. And so I think that uh, if we are normally able to get together at Thanksgiving, uh, hopefully you'll be able to do that and uh, that it will go well. So Romans chapter 5. Let me reread verses 1 through 5. We went through most of that last week, but this will be our our starting point tonight. Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So again, what does this mean for us, this peace of God? That's what we spent most of our time on last week. To have peace with God implies that a man's mind is at rest. That that, uh, we're not in emotional turmoil. Uh, We're not in an anxious state. Uh, We are at rest because we see things the way that God does. That's important, that we think God's thoughts after him. That's how we deal with reality. We don't depend upon our view of things. We don't depend upon the way we're feeling to interpret what's going on. Uh, We go by the truth of the word of God, and it really does touch on every aspect of life. So first of all, when it comes then to what we're talking about, having this and experience, now we'll go ahead and include this. Having this peace of God means that we are experiencing it. It's not just something that we know about. It's not just something that we that we say that we understand, but we are experiencing this. So in other words, I don't just talk about having a mind at rest. It really is at rest. So it's based, first of all, really on, I guess we would call it intellectual comprehension. In other words, we we understand something. In other words, if, if, if we don't grasp the doctrine of justification, then there, will, then there is no peace between God and man. If there is no peace between God and man, then there's going to be turmoil within us. Whether that turmoil is in a highly agitated state or maybe even in a mild state, we're going to be discombobulated in one way or the other. Uh, A very large majority of the 
emotional or mental difficulties that people have comes from or stems from the fact that they are at war with God. They are they're not complete. There's still that hole in their life. They don't have a firm grasp of of reality. It doesn't mean that they're living in a dream world. It doesn't mean that they're whacked out of their mind. But there's some pieces missing. And, and it's the reality of who God is. And so it's it centers around then the doctrine of justification. Remember, the Bible doesn't the Bible never tells us just to, you know, that all is well and, and don't worry. The Bible doesn't tell us that, oh, in the end, everything is going to be okay and the love of God's going to cover you. Because that's not the gospel. Remember, the gospel begins with really bad news. The gospel is good news. It's good news in response to the bad news or the bad truth that is a living reality for everyone, which is that everyone is spiritually dead, that we are separated from God, that we are living in rebellion to God, that we are condemned, and we have no chance of being forgiven or going to heaven. That's the bad news. The good news of Jesus Christ is the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished for us. That's the gospel. So the doctrine of justification then does come as truth to the mind. It's something that we have to understand it. Something that we have to understand. So now that we understand how it is that God can forgive sin, now that I understand how God can forgive me, now that I can understand how God remains righteous and just, and how it is that I'm reconciled to Him, then I I will have peace with God. Secondly, the one who understands and grasps the significance of justification is one who knows that God loves him in spite of the fact he's a sinner. That's a... You know, there's some things as Christians that we've known for a long time, especially for those of us who've been Christians for decades, that we, we kind of forget what it must be like for an individual who does not know the love of God. Because in a sense, at least for many years, that's all we've known. We know the fact that God loves us. We know the fact that I can always depend upon Him. I know the fact that that He's always there for me. I know the fact that, that I can pray and that He answers prayer. I mean, that's just a stabilizing factor in my life and in your life as well. So I know that, that I sin. I know that I fail. But I understand forgiveness and how forgiveness is, is granted. And so as a result, uh, I have the peace of God. Again, the person may ask, how can God love me and bless me? Well, we look at Christ. Christ dying on the cross. He was buried, rose again. And so, and so we say, I know he loves me. I can't understand it, but I know he does. Because I know what he's done for me. So it's not mere sentiment or feeling. Uh, We have to be very careful with that. I'm not against a person saying they feel loved by God. I don't know what that experience would be like for, for people. I guess it may be different for different people. But what about individuals who don't necessarily or aren't aware of any kind of a feeling? I, I think the fact that God loves us. It's very important. And if we think about it, 
true love, strong love that we have for other people and that they have for us is never based, based on a feeling and is always stronger than feelings because there are times that we don't get along. There are times that we disagree. There may be times that we're separated and understanding or putting our trust in the fact that the person loves us because they've demonstrated that in the past is very important. It, it gives us a very solid sense of hope. So I know what God has done for me. And so that, that helps to eliminate those doubts. So again, my uh, understanding that God, God loves me is not then a sentimental idea. It's not just a feeling. It's based on history. Actual events that took place in 30 AD or around that time. Uh, and those facts prove that God loves me. Jesus, even though Jesus was murdered, he wasn't murdered. His life wasn't taken to him without his consent. In other words, he allowed it to happen. God allowed Jesus to be crucified. Jesus laid his life down. It was not taken from him. He could have hung on the cross for years. But remember, he's, he was God. But as a, as a man, he, he died. Um, so, again, God does not just say he loves us. He has shown it to us and he's, and he's proven it to us. So, having the peace of God then, my mind being at rest, is, again, based on that. It's very important. In fact... Let me read this to you. We're going to cover this again later. But if you go on in Romans 5, verses 6 to 11, he says this. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So where's the emphasis again? Christ is not dying for the good. He's dying for the, those who aren't good. Which again is everybody, but that's what it's emphasizing. Then he says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. So in human reasoning, you know, there are people who, will, who are willing to die for other people. And people may die for a righteous man. Uh, they, they may die for a good man. You know, they may, they may put their life in the line. But God, as it says in verse 8, actually demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, that's a verse that I really love. We'll stop there for just a moment. I'm going to explain it again probably in a couple weeks, but uh, let me just kind of give you the strength of that verse. So again, it tells us that God is demonstrating his love to us. And that was when Christ died for us. But he tells us that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. So that phrasing, while we were still sinners, in the Greek language is actually very powerful. It means that while we were in the, in the midst of rebelling, while we were in the midst of basically spitting on God and mocking him, Christ died for us. Now, if you think about it from a human point of view, in, in the way that we uh, interact with people. So if there's someone that I know and we have uh, an argument, and let's say that we are even viewed as being at, at odds, we're enemies. So it's someone that I, I'm not close to, I don't really like them, and now we're having an argument. I'm convinced I'm right. He's convinced he's right. So we're, we're mad. And, and I would view this man as being, let's say, he's ungodly and unrighteous. He's just a bum. So to illustrate this, normally what happens is, let's say that a couple other people come along and, and are insisting that this individual and myself, that, that we would be reconciled, that we would be able to put aside our, our uh, differences and 
become friends. Normally, the way the process works is the hostilities either have ended or stopped. In other words, we're no longer yelling at each other. We're no longer calling each other names. Uh, maybe some time has passed. Uh, we've calmed down. And then we're, these other people bring us together and we work these things out. The time, the timing of where you would not do that is if we were in the midst of screaming at each other and spitting on each other and ready to come to blows, you wouldn't then have a sit down at that moment to work things out because we're angry and, you know, he's still saying these things to me and I'm going to react to that emotionally and back and forth. So the key here is that God then didn't say, now when you, when the human race is finished its temper tantrum and you've calmed down and thought about what you've done and, and you're even beginning to feel sorry for that, I'm going to send my son to die for you. That, that's not what he did. And, and he, he would not have done that because if he had, Christ would have never come. So the idea then is that the love of God is so great, it is so overwhelming that even when we were Imagine the, the ugliest, angriest face you can imagine where someone is screaming at you to the point that you you are tempted to shove them or to shove their face away. In the midst of that, that was when Jesus died, came and died for us. I just think that the, the more that we think about that image, the more powerful it becomes as we think about God's love for us. It's just, it's phenomenal. So verse 9. Much more than, speaking about us, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So we've been justified by the blood of Christ. That's the shedding of his blood, the death of Christ. Verse 10, for if when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So that's really emphasizing what we've been talking about here that if we understand and grasp the significance um, of how God loves me in spite of the fact that I'm a sinner, uh, we'll, we'll definitely have the peace of God. Thirdly, I, I have peace because I know that I've been justified. In other words, as a result of this knowledge, I can answer the accusations or the doubts that arise in my own mind. You know, my own mind may accuse me saying, Bob, you're not saved. There's no way you're saved. Look at these things you've been doing. You're overwhelmed with guilt. Ah, but I know I've been justified. Because I know what Christ has done. God knows all those things. God is uh, uh, came to save sinners. Um, just like me. God knew that I would even sin after he saved me. That didn't change his mind. So that justification is a very solid thing. And very important. Uh in fact, not only will it, will it deal with the accusations that arise in my, in my own mind, remember that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Uh, he's going to um, accuse us of, of things. And, uh, uh, but the one who believes the doctrine of justification by faith, we can answer the devil, so to speak. We can answer him. Let me, let me read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this, The one who believes vaguely in the love of God he cannot answer the devil. The devil will not listen to such a dribble. You say, I feel happy. 
well, you will soon be made to feel unhappy by the devil because the devil is more powerful than we are. There is really only one thing the devil cannot reply to. Only one thing the devil cannot overcome. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ or his anointed one have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. So the testimony was the blood of Christ or the death of Christ. That's our testimony. My testimony is Christ died for me. He shed his blood for me. Based on that, my sins are forgiven. And I've been reconciled to God. So therefore, again, the result of that is I am at peace with God and I would then also experience the peace of God. Fourthly, when we have a firm grasp of the doctrine of justification, we have peace because we no longer fear death. Again, that doesn't mean we want to die, but we're not afraid of death. That doesn't mean that if you're faced with death that you might not have a moment of being anxious. Some may have that. But you're not going to have this dread. It's not going to be this ongoing thing. I think that for most of us, most believers, we'll be able to deal with that rather quickly. Uh, and we no longer fear judgment for sin because my sin has been judged. That's, that's such an amazing thing when we think about it, that, that I am guilty of sin. I deserve to be judged by God for all of my sin, spend eternity in hell, suffer the most une unimaginable kind of pain, and I am not going to suffer that. Not because I'm good, I'm not. Not because I'm a pastor, not because of anything that I've done. It's all because of God and His goodness. Hebrews chapter 2, let me read verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. All right, so he talks about Jesus then coming in the flesh and through his death destroyed the power of the devil. Verse 15, and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I don't know if you know this, but the philosophy of, he of hedonism was born out of the fear of death and judgment. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the philosopher. Uh, it, it's kind of a, I guess we call it the, the foundational roots of uh, social or cultural Darwinism. And not dealing with the, the theory of evolution in the sense of how man came into being, uh, but the idea that um, evolution as a whole provides this a basis for um, talking about where we came from apart from God and then you kind of build from that which is it's empty uh, um, and I can't think of the, of the guy's name but basically uh, he, he was a man who who lived thousands of years ago who believed that man was in bondage because he was afraid of judgment and he just thought that was dumb he didn't believe in God and so uh, he thought that if we could get rid of this idea of an afterlife that it would free man and the man could basically live free and do what he wants 
And so that's kind of where hedonism. So there's there were two tracks to that. Uh, what he practiced was um, he would uh, he lived a very balanced life. He didn't overindulge anything. He was very disciplined, and he felt he had great freedom. What what others uh, the, the popular side of hedonism uh, came to the conclusion was this: Well, if this is all there is, then it doesn't matter what we do. So live it up. And, and so that's how we think of hedonism today. Uh, so the, the fear of judgment, is it's a big deal. And I do believe that every single human being knows there's a judgment. They may not always respond, or maybe they've gotten over fear to a degree. Sometimes that fear comes out at the moment of death or when they're facing a disease and things like that. But it's there because the, God says, and he's told us in Romans 1, that every man does know that. He knows that. We know that God hates sin. God's going to judge sin. We know that. Isaiah 32, verse 17, the work of the righteousness would be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. So again, the idea there is uh, that's, that's the effect of righteousness on me. I'll be at peace. I'll be able to sit quietly and I'll have great assurance. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. So again, uh, our mind is stayed on God, on Christ, because we trust him. Whenever I think about disease, death, whether it's my death or someone else's death, uh, I always, it always happens. It's just automatic for me. Think of it in terms of the Bible. Think in terms of it theologically. Where is God in this? Who is God in this? What has God done? I mean, it just it's just happens sometimes very quickly. Uh, and and so it, it, it keeps us still. keeps us quiet. Uh, there's not going to be a, a panic. There's not going to be, uh, you know, the, the, the outburst, so to speak, uh, from the individual. Now, fifthly, when it comes to this peace of God, uh, our mind is at rest as a justified man who sees things the way that God does as to our being forgiven and knowing that God loves us in spite of the fact that we are a sinner and having the ability to answer our inner doubts and the facts of history and being able to answer the devil as well, we ask, can we do all this even when we fall into sin? When you fall into sin, do you start doubting the whole thing? Doubting your position before God because of one sin or maybe of many sins? If you say to yourself, because I have sinned, I have lost it, you are then saying that you have had it uh, because you were good and you are wrong on both counts. So that's why we should never say that we've lost our salvation because of our sin. Because that means you gained your salvation because you weren't sinning. That's an affront to God and affront to the gospel. It's contradictory to the gospel. Now again, as I've said before, there are many well-meaning people that when we talk like this about this assurance of salvation, there are many people who are just fearful of that for many different reasons. The, the main fear is that people will abuse that doctrine. First of all, that absolutely can happen. That's, that, that's not a weakness of God. That's a sinfulness of man. Uh, anyone who begins to think that this assurance talk means we can go out and just sin uh, without even thinking about it misunderstands justification. And 
most likely, I can't say always, but most likely that individual doesn't really know Christ because a true, most true believers in Christ aren't going to think that. We might be tempted to think that, and some may even go over the line for a little while, but they will quickly return. Um, so when an individual dives into sin, and that's just, that's what, you know, they, they, they are, they're back into it headlong, then that's a problem. And what that probably means is they, that they were never really saved because they don't understand justification. So it, it's kind of dangerous, and it can be dangerous if it's abused. But again, Paul made it clear in verse 1, having been justified by faith. Remember, in the Greek language, that's what's called in the aorist tense, and it means the thing has been done once. The process, justification, is complete. You do not have to go on being justified. It's one act. There is a progressive aspect to our sanctification, becoming more holy. But as far as being justified, it's a one-time act. That's remember we that's when we use the terms whether it's our position in Christ, what was done legally or forensically. It's a, a judgment has been made. The gavel has been pounded on the desk. And we've been we have been declared by God to be righteous. Not because it's my righteousness, remember. It's because it's I'm wearing the righteousness of Christ. So this piece then means uh, uh, what this piece means for the home, what it means for us psychologically. Uh, it, 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 it provides emotional security for our children. Uh, because if we're at peace, the home is at peace. Proverbs 14.26 In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. Again, the fear of the Lord there uh, is a, a very uh, nuanced word. Uh, it does does mean having an, an awesome sense of reverence and dread. The, the dread part's in there. Uh, it's not that you're living in fear, that you are afraid of God arbitrarily lashing out in anger. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord would be a, a proper fear, meaning that when I sin, I have a proper fear. Just like when I was growing up, I had a proper fear of my dad. When I did wrong, I had a proper feel, fear that, that, that I would be correct and it would hurt which was true, um, but it wasn't a misplaced fear. It wasn't arbitrary. Uh, when I, If I was living in obedience to my parents, I didn't have that fear. I still had that respect for my parents, but I wasn't living in dread. But the dread was there immediately when I did wrong. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do you and do your children have a place of refuge? Because the place of refuge is the Lord. So if your family is facing an uncertain future, you bring your children together and you talk to them about it uh, and you, you talk about the Lord and the Lord's place in it and uh, there's a place of refuge. Uh, there's been a few times in the life of my family when my children were younger where we did that. Uh, there was a time I had just become a, a jail chaplain. Uh, when I served as a jail chaplain, I was really serving as a missionary. We had the race support. So, the, so this one particular year we moved. I was starting the ministry at a jail and a prison. I grew up in Hawaii. So we were in Hawaii and we moved to the Big Island. And uh, some thing, certain things didn't go so well. And so I was not getting paid. I, I didn't have any money. The Lord met our needs miraculous ways. But So I sat my kids down. We all sat down as a family. And I explained to them 
that though the Lord was taking care of us, there were certain things that would not happen. So one of those things that I said would not happen was that we would not have Christmas. Uh, I said we would still celebrate Christmas. There would be no tree. There would be no gifts except whatever their grandparents may send. Uh, we weren't going to say anything to anybody, but mom and dad weren't going to be able to get, get give them gifts. It just wasn't going to happen. There, there was literally no money. Uh, that we didn't have to be afraid. That uh, we were going to pray and trust in the Lord. The Lord had already provided food for us. Um, in fact, it was enough food to last till I was going to get paid, which I didn't know how long that was going to be, but it was a couple months. Uh, the uh, just a lot of different things worked out. Now it just so happened that that year, uh, after I explained all those things to the kids, the kids weren't fearful. They weren't crying. They didn't lose any sleep. Everybody was at rest in the Lord. We trusted God. Uh, it was the Saturday before Christmas. I don't remember what day Christmas was. doesn't matter. It was interesting that uh, a car drove up to our house, which didn't happen often because of where we lived. Uh, the Big Island of Hawaii is sparsely populated. Where we lived, it was even less people. We had one neighbor. Uh, we lived at the end of the paved road. After that, it turned to gravel. We also were at the end where there was electricity. After that, people were on generators. We lived out in the sticks. There was no uh, city plumbing. We had a swimming pool outside, but it wasn't for swimming. Uh, caught rainwater on the roof, went into the pool. The pool was our water supply for cooking, drinking, uh, laundry, everything. So being out there where we were, someone driving up to the house was lost or they were definitely there intentionally. Man got out. I can't remember his name. I wish I could. He was the pastor of, of, a, of a local Baptist church that I didn't even go to. We went to another one. And uh, when I opened the door, he was so excited to see me. He said, I got the right house. And he turned and kind of barked a command at his kids, popped the trunk, and they brought in a bunch of gifts. And they, they had brought Christmas gifts for my kids, people in their church. I had no idea this was happening. Uh, how he knew this, I had, I didn't have, I don't know. Um, but my kids had a a great Christmas as far as gifts go, uh, and it was a great expression of God's love through His people. Uh, and uh, my kids knew clearly uh, that this was the doing of the Lord. There was no other explanation. There was just a marvelous experience. But the thing to remember is whether that happened or not. Our family had a place of refuge. It was in the Lord. My wife and I are not perfect Christians. We were not perfect Christians. We were imperfectly trusting God with our lives. Uh, we tried to live it out each day. We talked to our kids about it on a regular basis. So they were very accustomed to our talk as Christians. We prayed about everything. And so then when I met with them and made that announcement about how things were going to go, uh, again, it was not a traumatic experience. I've heard stories of kids who are told by their parents there'd be no Christmas and they're screaming and crying and wailing and, you know, their life is over. And just, none of that happened. We, we prayed and they all went back outside and played. That was it, uh, which is wonderful to see. Uh, and there were several other times we, we had to kind of bring everyone together because uh, we were depending on God to supply our needs. And, and God did. He, he never let us down. Uh, not once. So it's truly amazing. 
But again, that trust in the Lord centers on our understanding the doctrine of justification that we've been spending weeks on uh, and what Paul has been elaborating on. So again, with all that said, we know that in reality, the, the possession of peace or the feeling of peace at all times eludes us. We, we need to emphasize that even though we have faith, it does not mean that we want to have to fight. So what I mean is, is that you can possess peace and not always feel uh, that peace. That Again, this is important to understand where our emotions come in. Emotions are great and they're the icing on the cake. We don't live by emotions. Our emotions at times can be wrong. They can be misleading. We, we at times cannot feel the peace of God. That does not mean that I am not at peace with God. I am at peace with God because of the doctrine of justification. So we want to make sure that we have a good grasp of that. We don't live by our feelings, and we can be thankful for that. Uh, very thankful. So again, we need to emphasize that even though we have faith, it does not mean that we won't have to fight as we live the life, fight against sin, fight against unrighteousness, fight against circumstances. We, we need to remember that uh, Abraham was fully persuaded or fully convinced um, about the promises of God. We need to be that person. We need to be fully convinced and fully persuaded. Uh, there needs to be an element of certainty in our minds when it comes to our knowledge of justifying faith in God. That, that my faith is placed firmly in the right person. So there are times when we are shaken. There are times when we'll have doubts. Uh, times when, where we have done wrong. Times when we have handled a situation perhaps poorly. And so we might be bombarded with doubt. But this bombardment is sometimes an actual proof of our faith. But we should always, in the end, find our rest in our faith. Not because I have great faith, but resting in my faith means I'm resting in who I am trusting in, which is Christ. So you can be a Christian without this full assurance of faith, but you cannot be a Christian without being justified by faith. So again, that's important. All right? You can live your life, you can be a Christian, and not have full assurance of your faith or yeah of, of your salvation. You can have you, you can be in that position, but you cannot be a Christian without being justified by faith. Remember, it is an action that takes place really on us by God, um, and uh, and is done for us by God. We are simply the recipients of God's grace. So at times, our faith may only just be able to get us. To, get us to the place of assurance um, but it does get us there you know you may not be fully convinced yet you may not be experiencing assurance yet but it, it gets you to that place because it's going to take you to the word it's going to take you to what God has done so I know that some of you I know that we've all been through this some of you uh, may have been discouraged in your lives as believers uh, even now you may recognize that you don't have full assurance uh, you may wonder if you really possess anything at all from God. Remember that as you revisit the doctrine of justification, there is always an element of assurance in that doctrine because of how it's worded. Uh, again, you may say, I don't feel it. I don't readily see the effects. But if that doctrine is true, then what? All right, then I'm accepted by God. 
even though, so if I don't see the effects of my salvation, if I don't feel assurance, the doctrine of justification is true, and because it's true, regardless of what I'm experiencing, I am accepted by God. I'm accepted by God because of Christ, because of what He's done, which is, again, so powerful. Again, notice that you, at this juncture, uh, you may not be looking at your faith. Uh, remember, you're looking to Jesus. We're looking to the cross. We're reminding ourselves that He rose again. And that's where our trust is. It isn't all of that. That's where my trust is. The emphasis is not my sin. The emphasis is not how I failed. The emphasis is not how guilty I may feel. The emphasis is Christ Himself. So two things. Uh, because there's false peace and there's genuine peace or true peace. So what are the characteristics of false peace? Because some individuals may try to convince themselves they have the peace of God. So what is the characteristics of false peace? Well, number one, first of all, if you think that faith simply means believing, I, I know that can sound uh, not too comforting, uh, to say the least. Uh, so what I mean is this. Believing, I'm using that then in the sense that you have given an intellectual nodding of the head to certain propositions. Meaning that you are acknowledging that Jesus was born historically, that Jesus was historically a good man, uh, that Jesus really was crucified. You're kind of, you intellectually know that. All right, so we're, we're drawing a distinction between that and where you've placed your trust in him. John Murray uh, says this. He's talking about the essence of faith, not as not as belief of propositions about the Savior, which again is necessary, but trust in that Savior. So you have to believe the right things about Christ, but we don't just believe the right things about Christ. We have to believe Christ. We have to believe Him. So this is what he says. He says, Faith is trust in a person, the person of Christ, the Son of God, and Savior of the lost. It is entrustment of ourselves to Him. It is not simply believing Him. It is believing in Him and on Him. So, uh, again, we need to remind ourselves that that is where our faith is placed. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. If He is not alive now, we're in trouble. There's no salvation. Because it's not based on just believing the right words. It's based on Him. The fact that He's alive and He's done all these things. Again, for you and I to give only an intellectual nodding of the head uh, to affirm the truths of the gospel is to do what it says in 2 Timothy 3.5. Having a form of godliness but denying His power. He says, from such people turn away. So again, faith is not just a matter of the intellect. Now, it doesn't bypass the intellect. It's much deeper. So we want to make sure we kind of think this through, all right? So we're not bypassing intellect. We're not. It's not that we're not using our intellect. We are. But it goes beyond that, all right? It's not just knowing the truth or knowing the facts. It's placing my trust in these things. It, it's kind of like this. My dad used to always use an illustration with people when he was talking to them about the gospel. So he told them, he asked them if they believed that planes could fly. And of course they would say yes. 
And he said if he, that if he took them to an airport and he bought them a ticket to go somewhere and gave them the ticket and then asked them the question, do you believe that that plane that you have the ticket for, do you believe that plane can get you to, let's say, Japan? Do you believe that? Or say, absolutely, I believe that. Then my dad would ask them, what do you have to do to make your belief worth something? And they inevitably always got it right. They said, well, I'd have to get on the plane. That's the whole point. To believe that the plane can get you to Japan doesn't get you there. You've got to get on the plane and sit in it. That means you're putting all of your trust in that plane. That's when, as we say nowadays, the rubber hits the road. That's what we're talking about here. Secondly, one of the characteristics of false peace is you're looking at your own believing rather than Christ. In other words, I now believe everything must be okay. You're, you're, you're putting your trust in the strength of your belief. Some people do this even when, they, when it comes to uh, their belief in Christ. They, they will try to evaluate how sincere they were. That's, that's a big one. You know, well, I'm not sure if I was sincere enough. Well, how do you gauge that? And, and how do you gauge that when you look back on your life? If you supposedly became a believer 20 years ago, do you remember how sincere you were? And if you were a teenager, they could be suspect to a degree because we're kind of fickle. So we don't, put our, we don't put our trust in our act of believing. Okay, we put it in Christ. Thirdly, I put two fingers on this. Thirdly, um, if you're never troubled by doubts and you're almost glib or too lighthearted about things, that might be a characteristic. Well, I'm careful with that. Most of these things by themselves don't really prove anything. It's, it's, it's putting these things together. Uh, I know that because uh, you know I've heard some people say, "Well, I never doubt my salvation." I don't know when they say that if they mean they have never doubted their salvation. Uh, doubting your salvation doesn't always mean that you're in the throes of doubt, and and you're thinking that somehow you you're, you're you become sleepless and you're crying all the time. I mean, that's that may be one aspect of doubting your salvation, but it doesn't always appear that way. Um, but if you if if we're never if we've never experienced doubts, and, and we're lighthearted about the whole thing, that may be a red flag. Uh, let me read to you from Titus, Titus chapter three, and I'll read verses one through three through three. It reads this way: But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. So there's this idea that we are to be thinking seriously. doesn't mean you can't have a sense of humor. We should have a sense of humor. We need one. Uh, but there's a soberness to our faith as Christians, and one that we should experience. First Peter, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So again, there's this idea of, of kind of disciplining our minds, you know, kind of getting a hold of ourselves and thinking about these things and here praying about these things and recognizing the times we live in. So there is a time for us to laugh 
and enjoy life and be carefree. But there are definitely also are times for us to be serious, seriously minded. And here, there is that reminder. So again, the Christian life is not a, some kind of a cosmic killjoy. Uh, at, for example, um, you may be, even by nature, a very lighthearted person. But I guarantee you when it comes to the safety of your kids, that changes. You know, you're not carefree and, eh, whatever. You're not like that. So when it comes to the salvation of our children's souls, to who presents the gospel to them, or if the gospel is presented right, you know, we, we probably would take that pretty serious. So that's the idea there with all of this. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are receiving, it's 12.28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may that by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So there's this idea that when we serve God, we take it seriously. Uh, so again, we're not glib. Uh, we're not like carefree and eh, if I do a good job or I don't do a good job, whatever. It's, it's never that. Uh, there's a, a serious mindedness to this. Second Corinthians 5.11 Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but we are well known to God, and I also trust you are well known in your consciences. So again, we, 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 the terror of the Lord is brought up here. That's to affect the way that we behave and our attitude. Philippians 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So uh, there is this idea that there are moments of life. It doesn't necessarily mean you're doubting your salvation, but but you will experience a sense of fear and trembling. Maybe it could be even a trembling with joy. You know, when you think about how close you, you came to being lost forever. You know, I, I, there are certain things I think about a great deal. One of the things I think about is when I read through the Gospels, I think about the crowds that were listening to Jesus. And I think about the reactions that people had towards him. And of course, because we know Christ and we know the truth about Christ, um, you know, we, we, we can see the error of their ways. But when I imagine myself being back in that time and I ask myself the question, where would I be? Would I be on the side of those who were in the great minority, who were listening carefully to Jesus and believing in what he says? Or would I be on the side of those who are mocking Jesus? The, the older I get, the more I'm convinced I will be on the side of those that are mocking Jesus. I, you know, I'd like to think that I'm this individual maverick who thinks on his own. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy by nature. I mean, I, I think I am a little bit, but that's a lot of that has to do with my Christianity. But apart from the work of God, man, I'm just a bum. And I think that I would go along with the masses just at the drop of a hat. And that scares me. It does. It scares me. And so it causes me to be even more grateful for the fact that God intervened in my life, that I was born into the family that I was born into, that I was exposed to the gospel a lot when I was younger, that I placed my faith in Christ when I did that I was surrounded by strong Bible teaching my whole life. I, I needed that. I, ne I desperately needed that. And I'm, I'm glad uh, because if the Lord had moved away from me in any degree, 
uh, I would be on my way to hell. And so I think that's the idea that's behind this passage here in Philippians. Two more things as far as the characteristics of false peace. Number four, false peace is also characterized by only being interested in forgiveness but not in righteousness. Forgiveness is a wonderful, marvelous gift and we need to emphasize that. But if you're not concerned in your life for righteousness, pursuing righteousness, it doesn't mean that you are obsessed with it. It doesn't mean that you are a perfectionist and that you become enraged with any mistake that you make. But there should be this concern that we are pursuing righteousness, that, that we're becoming holy. Normally, the last vestiges of unholiness in our life is in our minds. We, we don't have a good enough grasp of what goes on in our minds. It's in our minds that adultery takes place. It's in our minds that vengeance takes place. It's in our minds where hatred uh, for others continues to germinate. Uh, it's in our minds that, that our bad attitude shines brightly because it's a secret no one else can see it. Um, that should always concern us. And so we need to make sure that we're not only pursuing righteousness in our outward acts, but that we are pursuing righteousness in private and in our minds. So if our only concern is, or our only interest is in forgiveness, that you may have false peace. It doesn't mean that you have conquered your sin, because we're not going to conquer in this life. But at least there's an interest in righteousness. Uh, we want to be forgiven. You don't want to go to hell. But if you're not concerned about, again, being holy and walking or living in holiness, there's a problem. Hebrews 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And then fifthly, when falling into sin, that sin is taken too lightly. Your faith is not shaken when you fall into sin. It's no big deal. God will forgive you. That, that's a big one. I don't think that too many people actually are thinking when they sin, it's not a big deal. No one is no one is saying those words. But I do think that our attitude displays or manifests that that is a correct verbiage that identifies what's happening inside of me. That I'm still... That, 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 that that's a true statement about, about me. A true statement about you. When we fall into sin, you hear about Christian men having an, having an extramarital affair. So let's think about that sin for a moment. So if a man is, uh, whether, whether or not he's having trouble in his marriage, because there's men who have affairs and they may not be they may not really be having any trouble at home they, like you know there's no argument there's no not getting along you know they're just whatever so I'd, so we're not going to assume that it's just a bad marriage but what we are going to to look at to dissect for just a moment is kind of what goes on in in an affair even though it may be made instantaneously a decision is made to pursue another woman or other women until you find one that's interested in you. In other words, a man may be flirting with several different women until somebody responds. 
so he, so there's already time and effort being put into this. He's already ignoring his conscience in whatever way he does this. He's just shutting it down. He may even convince himself, that's eh, no big deal. Nothing's happened. I'm only flirting. It's harmless. You know, that kind of thing. So let's say that a woman does respond. And of course, he has to decide, uh, is he going to hide the fact he's married or maybe he discovers she doesn't care if he's married. But, you know, that, that, that kind of thing goes on. So, but he's aware, he's aware of the fact that he's married. So he's, he's now moving in the direction of breaking his marriage vow, which, by the way, if he's a believer, he made that vow to his wife before God. He really made the vow to God. He, he promised God he'd be faithful to his wife. So, so then, after that, um, there's the time and the effort, the energy that's spent, you know, and, and planning. How am I going to meet up with this woman? How are we going to get away with this? Can I get her gifts? Can I keep this going on? I mean, it just, it just continues. So you see, when it comes to this, he's, he's clearly thinking it's not a big deal. He's not concerned with the consequences or getting caught. And so the attitude that he has with all of that is very revealing that he's already drifted from the Lord and is definitely drifting at that moment. And so it's, it's problematic. And he might be resting on the fact that, well, he's forgiven or God had forgiven. Some cases, that effort by that man proves he's not a believer. I, there's not enough information in our little scenario to, to come to a conclusion. But that is definitely one conclusion. He, it's possible he's a believer. But we need to think seriously then about the sins that we kind of pursue. Because... Uh, uh, we may be banking on a false sense of peace and not true peace. So we will get into the characteristics of true peace uh, next week. That's what we'll start off with. Again, it'll be Tuesday. It, won't be, it will not be Wednesday. Uh, just so you know, if you want to watch this live, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your grace in our life and for the truth of your word. I do pray, Lord, that you would comfort our hearts with, with the uh, marvelous, deep truth of the doctrine of justification. And we recognize the strength of it and how foundational it is to every aspect of our life. Help us to evaluate our lives to make sure that we are not resting on false peace. And that we would yearn for true peace. And that we would experience the peace of God and peace with God as we trust in Christ for our salvation. We thank you, Father, that we have you to depend upon. And that we know that you always keep your word. Thank you, Father, for saving us from ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for never leaving us alone. And so now, Father, we ask that you would guide and direct us. Lead us, Father, in the way that we should go. Help us to be in tune with you, that we may go in the right way. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.